Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist. We also stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to excel in industry. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist or our program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, you can go to phdsgethired.com. Just enter your name and email address and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry. What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, you can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. Today, is, it's in line with something that we talk about a lot, right? As PhDs, you have the technical skills that you need, right? You are very intellectually uh, sound, if not, you know, you, you accelerate intellectually in terms of talking about technical details, the logic work ethic, autonomy, all this stuff. But whereas PhDs, we haven't had a lot of behavioral practice is in the terms of communication skills. Some of the softer skills are transferable skills. We have them, but we're not used to talking about them. We're certainly not used to pitching them to employers or other people, right? How you carry yourself, your presentation, all of these different things, they really matter. That's why we have our special guest on, Bill McGowan today, who I'll be bringing on after the show me the data section. So this is the show me the data section. This first topic is on executive perceptions of the top 10 soft skills needed in today's workplace. This is from journals.sagepub.com. And the table that we're looking at is perceived level of importance of each soft skill uh, attributed in the workplace. So the sample size is 57 here. What I like about this is it shows uh, what's really important to employers and to colleagues rather than, you know, sometimes what we think is important as, as PhDs. Personally, the bottom thing on the list here, work ethic, as a PhD, like we just value that. I'm not saying work ethic uh, is not important as, we, as we're going to go through this figure, but it's, it's great to see what is placed above it in terms of priority of importance, right? So very quickly, Janelle, I'm just going to break down the figure for those uh, people listening to us by audio only. Uh, we have on the list from top to bottom, from most important to least important, and we'll walk through how they, how they measure this data. Integrity is first, communication second, courtesy, responsibility, interpersonal skills, professionalism, positive attitude, teamwork skills, flexibility, and then work ethic at the bottom. So Jeanette, how do they come up with this data and what do all of these different columns mean, right? So we have, what do we have? Five columns, not important, not very important, somewhat important, very important, and extremely important. Yeah, 
So they got this data by surveying some um, executive leaders in business, and then they asked them what they felt the importance of these skills are in a, like a young new hire that they brought on. Yes. And they then rated it like as not important, very important, somewhat important, extremely important. And you can see the best way to sort of look at this figure is if you look at the very right hand column under extremely important, you can see what skills they thought were the most, most often were extremely important. And you can see that integrity and communication are right at the top of the list as 93% of employers said that integrity is extremely important and 91% said that communication is extremely important. Yeah, and this is fascinating. So let's just take the top four because I think the top four, there's really just two groups there, right? So yeah. out of the top four, it's integrity, communication, courtesy, responsibility. So integrity and responsibility are the same thing. And I think, you know, what we call it, at least the cheeky scientist is like ownership. Like if you make a mistake, you say, hey, this is a mistake that I made. Here's how I'm going to solve it, right? Instead of kind of punting the blame to somebody else, that's a big part of integrity, responsibility. Also, you know, not lying, uh, being honest in terms of something didn't work out, just own it. We learned this as a PhD. I think one of the most important lessons that I learned in graduate school is to say, I don't know when I actually don't know. Like we have a hard time with that as a PhD, right? We learned this in front of our thesis committee. We're getting grilled on something. And sometimes you just have to say, I don't know, or it's not known. Right, Jeanette? So what, what's your take on integrity and responsibility? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously very important. And I think as PhDs are right, we really know how to own what we've done and what we haven't done. And I think the rigor of, of like uh, that intensity of being grilled is you really have to realize like, this is my responsibility to make sure this is right. Yeah. Right. And I think that a lot of people are, don't have that skill. So it's important to be able to play that up as something that you really have as a PhD. Right. And this is something that is important for today's entire theme, right? If you have to pitch yourself, you have to carry yourself a certain way with a certain level of confidence, a certain level of ownership, self-efficacy. We're going to touch on those things. Clearly important. The, the other group there is communication and courtesy, right? So really those could go hand in hand, like communicating effectively, communicating politely. Uh, it's very, very important. I was surprised to see this. I mean, you know, communication is important, but to see it so much, uh, so highly above work ethic or even team working skills, et cetera, was kind of a surprise, right? I think this is a, might be a shock to some PhDs. What do you think, Jeanette? Yeah, I think maybe it is a bit shocking, right? To, to realize that it's how you talk about what you've done is more important than what you've done. Yes. How you were able to convey that to your boss, to your peers, whoever, is more important because if you've done something amazing, but no one can really understand what you're talking about, or you don't convey it in a way that is impactful and recognizes that you've done something amazing, then it's, it's not going to work. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is such a, this is such a difficult uh, thing for a lot of PhDs to realize because as PhDs, we work by ourselves a lot. And so you place a big importance on what you do a lot of, right? So your way you just naturally self-justify without even knowing it. So we think uh, uh, work ethic, autonomy, right? Uh, hitting deadlines, results, Collecting the data is the most important thing. No, that's just what you do the most. When you start working with larger and larger teams, it becomes, it's not like the results aren't important, but it becomes less about the result in terms of the overall spectrum and more about communication. Like getting the results, that's like 5%. If you can't communicate the results effectively or rally people to your side, right, to execute on those results or to respond to that feedback, right, if you can't pitch what the next move is, which again is communication, then you are in trouble. And this happens to me all the time. Like I had somebody say, you know, uh, when I first started working with a team, 
I was not very good at it. And they said, basically you run off of a, it's like you run off of a cliff and then you try to figure out how to build wings on the way down and you expect everybody else to know that you need wings, right? And I think this is a lot of us as PhDs, like we live inside of our heads. We have a great vision. We know exactly what we need to do. And we're like, how do you not know what the vision is here? It's like, oh, you haven't communicated it or you've spent like this much time communicating it. And it's people who over communicate in terms of the definition uh, that a PhD would give that are effective in business. So you might hate the fact that you're saying the same thing for the 15th time in a slightly different way so that everybody can understand just a bit better. That's really what it is. That's the most simplest way I can explain it. So great stuff there. Uh, let's move on. The next figure, the title is improved communication improves productivity. So you might hear this, it might seem like common sense, but we wanna see the data and that's what we're doing here. So this is a McKinsey and Company study and the result says improved communication and collaboration through social technologies in particular, like the technologies you'll use to manage pro projects in industry. We'll talk about that in a minute. These things could raise the productivity of interactions between workers by 20 to 25%. So real quick, Jeanette, I'm just gonna break down what we have here on uh, the X access side of, of this table and then in the column. So we have reading and answering emails, searching and gathering information, communicating and collaborating internally, and the role specific tasks. Now, first of all, it's amazing that these are the four sections that McKinsey and company is breaking up like what you do at work, right? This will really help you understand what you do now in a much more general sense. Reading and answering emails, so basically correspondence, searching and gathering, searching for and gathering information. That's probably like 90% for most of you if you're a PhD. Communicating and collaborating internally. This, what you'll do a lot of this in industry and then role specific tasks. Those can be considered your technical tasks, okay? Um, and then on the, uh, the columns above it, it breaks down to percentage of the average work week that you spend during this. It has interaction uh, in terms of workers' tasks, increased value added time, again, through using these project manager, project management like uh, social technologies. And then the final column is productivity improvement in terms of a percentage. So Jeanette, can you give us the overall takeaway and then we can break it down a bit? Yeah, of course. So the overall takeaway is that this study looked at if you introduce a technology, a social technology that allows coworkers to communicate better and more effectively, they save time in each of these areas. Yes. And so you see that increased value added time is the percentage of time that they got back by not having to struggle through communicating with one another. And then the far right column shows the productivity improvement that that amount of time gave to them. Absolutely. And, and so this is why we talk so much about company culture, which is not just, you know, having Hawaiian shirt day at the office. Okay. It's not just what you wear. It's the processes that you use to communicate as well. So some companies, they'll call each other between offices. Some companies will use project management softwares like Slack or Trello or Monday. We use Monday. Um, and that's not an endorsement, but I'm just saying there's so many different project management software platforms out there. And as a PhD, you probably don't realize what they are. A huge part of your success is how quickly you learn to use that software package. And as PhDs, right, we talk about speed of learning, huge advantage you have. Leverage that when you're applying for a job. Um, but these things matter. And so here's some data you could show. Be like, look, I am the fastest learner by the definition of my degree. I'm a doctor of philosophy which means I'm the doctor of knowledge and the ability to ascertain knowledge. I'm a doctor of learning. Learning is crucial when it comes to uptaking new software programs. This is what employers are looking for. So if you can pitch the fact that you can learn software programs like this very, very quickly, they know it's valuable. And just, you know, the results here, Jeanette, are what? 
we're not talking small numbers. We're talking in some cases, right, for like searching and gathering information. They were able to recoup 30 to 35% of their time by using the right social technology tool, correct? Yeah, that's Was exactly surprising right. surprising to you? Um, no, because I know how much time I've wasted looking for things in the past yes. where you're like, I know I wrote that email to someone three weeks ago. Where is it? <laughs> so yeah. that kind of stuff is, it's a time suck. Yeah. It's huge. And again, just to use kind of our team as an example, and I think a lot of smaller companies end up passing documents back and forth to each other. We started using Google Drive documents for everything, like just these big lists on Google Drive and people would share it. And you think like, okay, everything else is going to be fairly similar to this. But then we moved to a, a more advanced project management software system. And we've been able to get organized much, much better. And a lot of you as PhDs, you don't know what's out there. I know I was using Excel spreadsheets. That was, it, that was it, right? Like sometimes you're printing off stuff from a machine that's been around since the 1980s and you're keeping like the hard copies. I mean, it's, it's, you're a bit behind the times in terms of leveraging new networks and technology networks and software platforms. That's why we're bringing this up because it's, it's, it is a crucial to you in terms of your productivity. Can I add one more thing? I think we just yes. sort of highlighted that project management is communication. I yeah. think that a lot of times that doesn't really get translated, but it is. It's not just being organized, right? It's being able to communicate really well. Yeah, great point, right? Yeah. In project management and industry, it's communicating budgets, communicating timelines, communicating the actual project, coordinating all these cross-functional relationships that rely on, you guessed it, communication. Fascinating data to go through. Really, really enjoy going through a lot of this, um, this data with you because we tend to focus a lot on the transferable side because as PhDs, you have the technical side down. You have to start mastering these technical skills. You have to understand that they are important. Our first guest is Bill McGowan. Very excited to have him on. He's the founder and CEO of Clarity Media Group. He's accomplished a lot. So I'm going to go through his, his bio here because it's all very, very important. He is a two-time Emmy Award-winning journalist who has produced and reported for ABC News 2020, CBS News 48 Hours, Dow, uh, Dow Jones Television, and MSNBC. Uh, he has anchored hundreds of hours of news and information programming, has conducted thousands of interviews with newsmakers, CEOs, celebrities, doctors, a lot of you in the group, we were talking about this this week. Uh, lots of excitement to have him on. Uh, he's talked to book authors, attorneys, and professional athletes. He now uses his experience to coach clients, um, to exude more confidence, right? To, to command, whether it's in television or an audience, for, for all of you in front of employers, any group of people, people that you need to communicate effectively with, pitch effectively with. He has trained people that you have likely heard of, Eli Manning, Cheryl Sandberg, Jack Welch, Mary J. Blyze, Carly Kloss, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, um, CEOs, the CEOs of Facebook, Airbnb, Snapchat, Coach, Spotify, Calvin Klein, Lyft, Sesame Workshop, Whole Foods, I love Whole Foods, and many more. So he gets clients ready by sharing his insights into the distinctive styles and ta tactics of different interviewers. Interviewing is not something that's easy, right? You might think, Isaiah, you're an incredible interviewer. You're a natural. No, I was, hor I was even worse than I am now, and I'm sure that Bill's going to have some great tips for me. Uh, he, he, is, he is the expert in this field. He's provided sound strategies on handling crisis situations, 
Um, he is also a resource uh, for Clar uh, Clarity Media Group in terms of, of handling crisis in, uh, situations. He's also an expert in public speaking, has prepared numerous clients for TED Talks, Matrix Awards uh, acceptance speeches, major university commencement addresses, and corporate shareholder meetings. Um, as part of his coaching, he helps clients find their authentic narrative and then teaches the necessary skills to enable them to deliver it with passion and persuasiveness. He is the author of this book I've been showing all week, Pitch Perfect. Great book, Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time Every Time. So there it is on YouTube and in our private mem members group. Great book, Bill. Thank you for being on with us. It is an honor. I appreciate it. Isaiah, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. So I just showed the book, and I, I, I really like, would like to start there, and I wanted to start with the why. Why did you write this book? Interestingly, after these one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions that I would do with clients, many times I was asked, well, what kind of materials are out there that you feel I could read or just continue this process? Because I realize it's not a one-and-done type of scenario. And... I never really felt like there was a book out there that I felt 100% uh, supportive of recommending as, as a resource. So I thought, yeah, I think it's about time I, I write one myself. Uh, so I sat down and I tried to make it more than just a situation where you're getting strategies around media interviews or big presentations. I wanted to focus on every single time you open your mouth in a fairly high stakes situation. That could be attending a meeting, giving a report to your superior at the office, how to talk of your boss at a cocktail party, how to talk when you meet your future in-laws, any kind of situation where there's a lot riding on you performing well and articulating yourself in a certain way. Fantastic. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that goes right to the benefits, which is what I was going to ask about too. I mean, you read this book and you really walk away with uh, a sense of how to carry yourself well in any high stakes situation, whether it's yeah, standing in front of a decision maker for the big job that you want. You're standing in front of, uh, you know, in our personal relationships, meeting your in-laws, like you said. So I think, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, you share a lot of your personal stories and the things that you've been through in the book. And I'm curious if anything comes to mind, you know, in, in the realm of that first time where you have kind of a high stakes situation where you're like, okay, this is real. I'm an adult now. I'm a professional. I got to stand up in front of somebody and carry myself and show that I can play, you know, with the, the, uh, the high level decision makers. What, what are some of the first things that you should focus on or things that you tell someone who's never been in that situation before? I'm amazed at how many people go into these situations without a game plan for the first two or three sentences that come out of their mouth. They might have a very firm idea what the official beginning of their pitch is or the official beginning of the presentation, but there's this gap of getting up to cruising altitude that a lot of people leave completely to spontaneity. The first thing that pops into their, into their head. And in my mind, that's a crucial mistake because the first eight to 10 seconds are absolutely vital. Mm. You have to nail those first two sentences or people make a dozen value judgments about you. Are you worth listening to? Do you have credibility? Um, do you know your stuff? Mm. And I find people get off to a very bumpy start because they don't, they're not going according to a game plan. Mm. And it means even knowing what that little small talk might be. Um, I was just in London doing a whole series of trainings and the people over there said, 
you know, the first minute that you meet people, it's always about the weather. You know, everybody's talking about the weather. And how do you get from the weather, how do you get people engaged in what you're there to talk about? I said, well, you actually need some kind of segue line Mm. where you know this is going to be the little small talk. You need to think that through ahead of time. How do I transition and segue from that small talk banter about the weather into something that gets me started on on what I'm there to talk about. That should not be left to chance if you yes. really, really want to be good at this. No, and, and just for uh, a lot of our listeners, one thing that we've talked about where it gets that specific, to the level of specificity that Bill's talking about is even your response to how are you doing today? We like, we, we've seen behavioral psychology studies that say saying the word perfect is a great way to respond to that. But a lot of people might just say, whatever pops into their head. Oh, pretty good or X, Y, Z or whatever. But if you have a game plan for every little thing like that, you're saying it's going to go more smoothly uh, throughout the entire conversation. Definitely. And I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is responding to that question with some kind of griping about, well, you know, the subway this morning, oh my God, it was so crowded. Nobody wants to hear that. How are you doing today is not really meant for a detailed negative response. It's meant for uh, doing great. Looking forward to our chat today. You know, and and to get now into your enthusiasm for what you're there to do with this person or in front of an audience. Yeah, and because you brought up your audience, one thing we're constantly talking about is, you know, when you communicate, there's, you know, your purpose, but the other side of the coin is your audience. So Mm -hmm. how do you balance getting your purpose across your game plan, like you said, with responding to things that happen by chance because you're dealing with another person that could just bring up whatever. Maybe they had a horrible day. So how do you kind of balance that as you're pitching? I often recommend to clients when they have to present to 15 or more people, there's sometimes a social component before you have to get up and speak. It could be breakfast off to the side or a couple of coffee urns. And rather than go off by yourself and obsess about how you're going to do and get all tight and nervous, I often tell people, go around and have as many 60-second conversations as you can with people. Mm -hmm. Take the pulse of the room. And that accomplishes two things. One, it now no longer makes the people in the audience strangers to you. They're now familiar faces, and because they've met you, they're probably going to be invested in being better listeners. That means smiling, nodding, giving you that positive reinforcement when you're standing up there. They're probably not going to pull out their phone and start you know, doing that as you're speaking, which is a total confidence killer. But it also helps you take the pulse of the room where maybe somebody says something to you over that cup of coffee, and you realize that's a great way to start. Maybe I can now give it this feeling of spontaneity by saying, you know, I was, I was talking to John as we were having coffee before we started and he said something really interesting and it made me realize that's really at the heart of what I want to share with you today. You know, so as long as you feel confident making that a last minute addition at the top, it has a real great effect of pulling the crowd to you and now you're talking with them instead of at them. Yeah, uh, perfect for this audience. So, th- so think about it, and we've talked about this, when you go to an interview very often, especially for PhD level interviews, you're going to give a talk. And it's right around that 15 people usually uh, in, in the audience uh, a number. Instead of 
obsessing over your PowerPoint slides, you know, getting in front of the computer, acting like you're getting it all set up. We're really, you're not go out there and talk to everybody who starts sitting down and get to know them. And, and you'll hear from them, you know, what their experience level is, right? Maybe you can adjust it, make it a little bit more informal, a little bit less data heavy, et cetera. You can adapt like that. And it goes a long way. It's, you know, knowing the pulse of the room, like, like Bill just said. And knowing your audience, I, I feel like with PhDs and academics, scientists, mathematicians, whatever. And we train a lot of them because many of them have written books. Mm. So many of them come across our path. And I find that one of the biggest drawbacks, one of the biggest pitfalls for them is the curse of knowledge, mm. where they know their material backwards and forwards, and they make certain assumptions that their audience does as well. And the next thing you know, they're throwing around acronyms or jargon or very granular detail type of terminology that just, you know, goes right over the head of the audience. And once you get into that mode, the audience really never catches back up with you. Mm. Uh, so I think empathy is a big component of good communications. You have to understand what is this audience, what can I reasonably assume they know? And yes. what do they want to leave here with in terms of my message or in terms of my guidance and really try to put yourself in the shoes of the audience. Get yourself out of this bubble of this is what I prepared. This is my material. This is my thesis and understand what's the value I'm bringing to what I'm saying. Perfect. Yeah. And so for all of you, you're hearing this at the highest level. You will get inside your heads if you focus on what you know, the acronyms, the jargon, you're going to lose your audience. You got to meet them at their level. And, and that starts with knowing who they are. I'm really, really glad you brought that up, Bill. So, okay, let's stick with academics for a bit here. You know, let's say you're trying to help somebody that's like me in 2009, horrible in front of people. Like I was having panic attacks when I was starting to prepare. I was getting my first job as an application scientist. You stand and give a lot of presentations, right? It was, it was a lot because as PhDs, we usually hide behind a podium stare at the screen with a bunch of data, click, 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 and bury the lead, and that's it. How would you start to train me to be a more effective communicator, especially in terms of confidence, especially in terms of the way that I carry myself? What things help? Like if you started up the biggest chunks and then drilled down, what would that look like? I would suggest that you always get out from behind the podium, if possible. Yes. The podium really is a barrier between you and the audience, and that you might be able to, um, you might be able to, in fact, time walking out from behind the podium and approaching the audience at your first key idea. The, the mere sight of you leaving the mothership and now walking towards them is in and of itself an attention getter. Yes. Uh, I would get yourself uh, these large index cards. It's basically the size of a regular sheet of paper folded in half. Get, get these larger index cards, put little bullet point notes on them uh, as to what it is you want to say more outline form. I, I call it GPS directions for your mouth. Not a full script. Here's, start. here's, um, you know, here's the format, here's the structure. And these cards are great because they anchor your hands where you want them on stage. In fact, if I could just sort of tilt my screen, you want them, you, you want to hold your cards pretty much against your torso. You don't want them here where 
It's now, this is at the ready for me to read. I want them held against my body and it, and it anchors my hands in the right spot. Uh, now, when I want to reference the cards, I'll just pull them away, reference them, and put them back, okay? If you didn't have anything to hold on to, I'd still want your hands pretty much in this position when you're on stage. And the reason why I like this is because when you go to use your hands, you have a very short distance to, to work them, to get them in the action, and a short distance to rest them when they're done. If they're down by their sides, it's a, more of a choreographed gesture, and then they've got a long way to fall to get back to a resting position. So, but the nice thing about the cards is they anchor your hands where they're supposed to be. And so, uh, yeah. so that, that looks, and I think that's great. Now we have some chatter here. That, that doesn't look unprofessional, right? Because it's all about how you carry it. So I think, you know, the fact that they're bigger cards, you're holding them professionally, it matters. Like if you, you have a little card, it looks like you're trying to hide it. Your hands are by your sides. Yeah. You seem nervous about it. And the nice thing is these cards fit perfectly inside the inner breast pocket of most men's jackets. Mm. So they're easy to store. You can literally walk on stage, get behind the podium, you know, pull them out easily. Uh, when you're at the podium, if you decide you're just not the type to walk stage and you feel more comfortable behind a podium, um, what I'd like you to do, instead of flipping pages over when you're done like that, just <clears throat> literally, after you're done with one, just slide it off to the side on the podium. And now you have a, a done pile and a read from pile. Um, you just want the whole thing to be as inconspicuous as possible. Yeah, and being organized. And you could, I mean, this is something you could put into a, a little folio folder as you walk in. I might, just for those of you asking, you could put it in to uh, anything you carry with yourself professionally because you should have a pad of paper for the, again, we just, these are some questions coming in on Zoom. Uh, you know, a legal pad in a little fo yeah. folio, you could pull it out. That's very professional. So it's not, right. it doesn't have to be tricky at all. No, 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 no. And there are basically three things that I think are really important for people to know cold. And that means literally memorized. Mm. It's the first line that gets you into the slide. It's the main big idea takeaway point on each slide. And then what's the concluding line or the segue line that transitions me to the next slide? Mm. Because I find that the mushiness and the really boring, non-engaging aspects of most presentations are how people start each slide. Okay, so um, now if we were to look at this from a so-and-so perspective, that is not the way you start a slide at all. You yeah. want to start a slide by saying, uh, trade is the biggest issue facing North America today. A short declarative statement and then build off of it. I love that. And let me just jump in real quick because yeah. in academic presentations, we talk about bearing the lead all the time, which I know is in your book, right? I, I'm, I'm really happy it was in there because I think it is the biggest mistake, at least, you know, the academics make. We want to tell a story, like we start so slow, we start with the background, like all the stuff that really doesn't matter, hasn't mattered for like 30 years. And then we slowly work to like the last slide, which is the only slide with data that matters. And we give our conclusion, which is the opposite of what you want to do, right? So what, what do you mean by not, don't bury the lead? In the newspaper business, years, you know, over the years, they work on a system called the inverted pyramid. And the inverted pyramid means that you put your most important stuff right at the top, and then of 
descending importance you write the piece. And that's because when they needed to shorten a 2,000 word article to 1,500 words, they didn't go back and rewrite it. They just locked off the last 500. Yeah. So if you put your, <laughs> if you put your important information in the last 500, it was gone. So that, that's why a lead in journalism has to be the most important thing because that's never gonna be cut. Hmm. In presenting for academics, you're gonna have the greatest amount of engagement from your audience in the first 15 seconds of what you say. And then you play a game of diminishing returns. So if you put your most important stuff at the one minute and 45 second mark of the slide, you may have 15%, 20% of the people still with you. And they may be chewing on and digesting something you said at the one minute mark, hit them with it right out of the gate and then explain why or illustrate the point you're making. Yes. And, and so I want to, I want to go back to, uh, to I want to stay with, well, I want to stay with the book real quick. And then I want to talk about some of the, you know, the best pitches of all time, especially from the, uh, the movie business. I have a couple of examples I want to get your take on. Um, sure. But first for your book, there's something called the Don Draper principle. I think this is another crucial one that people don't understand the power of it, right? So maybe you can explain what the Don Draper principle is in terms of controlling the conversation or changing the conversation and how you can do that very, very easily um, in, in to, to take away, uh, really to remove yourself from a difficult conversation or one where you're going to be explaining or losing to, to start it in, a, in an area where it's your strength and not a weakness. I called it the Don Draper principle because there's a famous line from Mad Men where in the ad business he says, well, if you don't like, if you don't like um, what's being said, change the conversation. Yes. And in preparing people for media interviews, it's a technique that has long been called bridging, where you are on a road that the other person in the conversation wants to go down but you realize that road is not fruitful for me. It does not lead me anywhere good. In fact, it probably dead ends in a bad way. So how do I get from the road they wanna to travel to the road I wanna travel on? And that's really literally what's called a bridge. There are three components to a bridge. One of them is validating the point that the other person is making. So let's say you've, um, you've raised topic A on with me and you want to have this conversation about topic a and you want to find out what my point of view is on topic a the validation is um, something along the lines of well there's no question that's getting a lot of attention in fact i saw a piece just this morning on it i think it merits a lot of attention um i think it could go a long way towards deciding x y and z down the road what i also think is a critical um factor right now in the conversation is this. And so you validate it and then it's an add-on, it's an addendum to what they're saying and you're pushing the conversation to the road you want to go down. Hmm. Um, so, so essentially you close the loop for them, like, cause they want yeah. to get to a place where they get validated and you do it for them. So now you can move on to the bridge. Validation I think is a hugely important element because everybody loves to be validated it throws them off the scent a little bit that you've changed the topic on them. Um, and this is in media, what typically is missing from the bridge is the validation or the worst bridge on earth is, well, I'm not here to talk about that today. What I am here to talk about is, you know, that is the worst possible 
overt, blunt uh, method of doing it. Uh, you want to get like be quiet is what you're telling them. That's right. Or uh, I have no interest in talking about that. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> Great. So, so that's the first, that's the first technique. And I know the other, there's two others. What, what might be one, one other way besides validity? And this is, this is really important for those of you listening. Think about going on an informational interview or an interview and you get into territory where maybe, you know, it's not your expertise instead of like digging your heels in, whatever you could say, well, I'd love to learn more about that or that is crucially important and it's something I'm looking into, whatever it is, if you go with a validation route and you move into it instead of away from it, um, it can allow you to build that bridge to change the conversation to something you're more comfortable with. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they try to wade through a topic that they don't know anything about. And the, the classic mistake they make is, well, the longer I talk, the more convincing I'm gonna sound. I'm going to sound like I have actually some knowledge about this. And that is precisely the opposite strategy because you were talking about it earlier with Jeanette in, in terms of brevity, yes. there's so much wasted time. There's so much wasted productivity because people cannot get to the point. Yeah. And I sit in on a lot of these meetings and hear a lot of these conversations. And I'm thinking, boy, this 40 minute meeting could have been 25 easily easily without even effort yeah. because people just talk in circles and they're incredibly redundant yeah and a good question to have playing in your head at times you know well number one prepare like bill said but also be like do i need to say this <laughs> like does yes, this right. am i making any sense Is, am i just talking because you're trying as phds we do this all the time we just keep talking because we're like figuring it out as we say it mm -hmm. to ourselves but that is awful for everybody else. there's a there's a famous clip from the office when Michael Scott is admitting, you know, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. So I just hope I find it along the way. That is also what we coach against. When you open your mouth to convey a thought, you should have a general vision as to what the finish line of that thought looks like. Not in a scripted verbatim way, but generally here's my beginning, here's my middle and here's my end. And if you cannot see the finish line by the time you open your mouth to start talking, that's a great indication you're talking too long. Perfectly said. Uh, very shorter, last question. Shorter, simpler sentences is also a great way. I think these longer, ponderous, paragraph-long thoughts are another great way for academics to just lose the engagement of their audience. Yeah, of everybody very quickly. So on that note of brevity, one thing I, I, I read a couple of books early on um, about pitching yourself for a for movies right where the stakes are really high we're talking about million dollar movie pitches and it's fascinating to me because it applies even to like a elevator pitch for a job interview etc saying something about yourself that people will actually will remember in a very short amount of time in this case a movie and the one i always think of like the most famous one ever is for alien they're pitching the movie alien in 1981 1980 and they said it's jaws in space Mm -hmm. Three words, you immediately get it, very concrete, paid for. A more recent one was Avatar. I think it was uh, Dances with Wolves in Space, right? So how can you get better at saying things so simply that they understand, in this case, for, for the audience here, like you can say who you are and what you can add to a company, for example, or what you can add to the situation quickly. Like what's, what would be the process for doing that? Both of those things are very well-crafted analogies. Mm. 
where you compare something that might be unfamiliar to the audience and get them to understand it by comparing it to something common and familiar to everyone's experience. And so while the, one of the most famous ones of all time was Colin Powell being asked, so should we go into Iraq and depose Saddam Hussein? And instead of getting into what an academic might do, a really wonky, granular explanation about regime change in the Middle East, he, oh, and he would have been totally capable of doing that, he mm -hmm. said, well, this is the Pottery Barn principle. If you break it, you own it. <laughs> and what's brilliant about that quote is that nobody understands regime change in the Middle East, but everybody understands going into a store and knocking something over and having to pay for it. Yes. So the analogy is a great thing. I had a session the other day where we were talking about NPS, a net promoter score, which is essentially what companies now use as a barometer as to how well they're doing in customer service. Hmm. But we were talking to an audience that never knew, doesn't know what an NPS is. So what I said to the client was, why don't we say that an NPS is kind of like a company's report card. And if your score is lower than a six, you probably want to hide it from your parents. Nice. Um, you know, so you're taking things that, that are comparing to something else that everybody gets. It's simpler. Right. And that's, that's a great idea. I mean, so really you're building a bridge from the complex to something simple, right? And, yeah, and very familiar to everybody. Familiar. Yeah. So the entire audience is going to know what you're talking about because they know, you know, you break it, you buy it. Everybody knows that, but like you that's said, right. regime change. Yeah. Great, great conversation, Bill. Thank you very, very much. I do want to say, please check out Bill's book, Pitch Perfect. I'm going to show it here on all screens. Uh, fantastic book on how to pitch yourself. Nothing's more important than communication. And if you break down communication to, you know, the component that really matters during any sort of high stakes situation, it is the pitch. That's what it's about. Uh, it has so much more than we talked about today. Um, Bill, you know, any, any final thoughts in terms of the book to add and anywhere else that we can send people? I know you have a lot of things in the works and you've helped a lot of different people, academics, et cetera. Uh, what's coming up? We had a very generous and nice Instagram or Snapchat video that Kim Kardashian posted. Wow. After <laughs> our training with her, we were coaching her on how to do this thing, uh, conversation with Steve Forbes for this Influential Women's Summit. And so she leafed through the book. She put a little, she put a little video up about how much she liked the book. It was wow. very, and we found out firsthand just how influential the. the <laughs> I was going to say, not not a small Instagram account. Um, no, 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 no. no. Um, I think that what I often tell clients is that communicating better is an easier thing than learning a new language playing a new sport, anything, um, you know, anything like that, because playing a new musical instrument, because how many times are you gonna practice during the week? Once, twice, but we speak all day long on the average of 16,000 words a day. Wow. And if you were very intentional about every time you open your mouth for two weeks, eliminating your filler language, figuring out how to boil this thought down to its core essence. If you were intentional, every time you open your mouth for two weeks, you could transform the way you speak. Fantastic. 
great takeaway. And I think that's something we can all practice. As a PhD, you might only be speaking a thousand words per day in a lab, but we will work up because eventually in business, you'll be up to that 6,000 level, 16,000 level. So thank you, Bill, very much for your time. Yeah, thanks very much. Really enjoy the show. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to CheekyScientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Come on,